Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So, Brian, one theory that's a little bit separate from all the physics and scientific theories, and it's a theory I feel like anyone could engage in the speculation of it, is the idea that the universe, the entire universe, is really a simulation. Some other civilization's virtual reality that we inhabit as if we're the, the the characters or the avatars in some giant universal size game. And from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, the idea is, you know, we've only been playing with virtual reality for what, 40 years, 30 years. And it's already like when I put on a, a VR headset, it's pretty good. It's not, it's, I could see it's not the real world, but it's not bad. So the idea is Imagine if a, a civilization has been around for a billion years and playing around with VRs, their simulations would be perfect and they would have billions and billions and trillions of simulations around of which the real universe is only one universe and then all these other simulations, trillions are other universes. So the odds are almost probable that we're a simulation. We're, you know, if, you, if, you, if the real universe is only one out of a trillion, the odds are we're in a in a simulation of another much more advanced civilization. Well, I love this idea. Not necessarily because I think it's likely to be true, although the question of how one could resolve it relies on me not being able to have a strong opinion in its favor. Well, why, why is that? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, it's part of the sort of illusion of free will that some say we have, some say we have actual free will. And what's so interesting to me about the simulation hypothesis is that it connects to so many different aspects. First of all, the cosmological one that you just talked about. Secondly, it talks about, uh, it eventually gets into prospects for artificial intelligence, virtual reality, Moore's law, scalability, technology. Remember, one of the taglines of our namesake, founding namesake of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, where I'm the co-director, I run the Into the Impossible podcast. Arthur Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So you could just replace magic with uh, artificial intelligence, and you could actually in in increase that according to Moore's law. And it wouldn't take very long until there's a certain amount of computing power that would be superseded, and we'd get past the bottleneck to any technological objections that could be made. 
So first off, let me ask you, when was the first time you've ever used a virtual reality? Uh, the first time I ever used it was probably eight years ago. Uh, Google Cardboard started to come, come along. Augmented reality, maybe it was seven years ago, something like that. Okay, I'm, I'm approximately 1992 wow. where I used a, a virtual reality. We, were, we were, went to a place, uh, like a warehouse, and I get in a booth, and someone else gets in the booth, and you're suddenly in this virtual reality, and it's a shoot them up. You could run around, and you shoot the other person, and maybe there aren't as many points of clarity. I don't know what you mm -hmm. call it in a, in a VR, but you know, suffice to say, thirty years later, virtual reality is is so much closer to like a real world. Like if you're if you're walking on a plank now in a VR, you feel like afraid of heights. Like you feel like you're gonna fall off the plank and hurt yourself. Like it's it's so your brain interprets it so real, but the disconnect with reality is that if you do this for 30 minutes, your brain realizes, oh, wait a second, I've been tricked. This is not really a reality. It's I'm going to make real. this person sick. Right. <laughs> and so you start to feel nauseous. Yeah. And I had to give a talk once in a virtual reality. There are hundreds of people from all over the world. Wow. And after about a half hour, 45 minutes, I really was feeling uh, ill, nauseous. Yeah. But um, the technological objection is that the complexity you would need requires more atoms in the universe than exist. That's the technical objection I've heard, but Moore's law implies that we solve that problem in ways that we don't yet know. Like for instance, quantum computing would solve that problem. Potentially. And and actually those kinds of objections are not the fundamental kind of resistance that I come up with. I actually think there are other objections that uh, make it much more uh, delightful to consider. And for example, let's say let's say you just knew that there is a uh, that you're part of a virtual there is a full virtual reality simulation occurring on the Vanuatu island off of Easter Island or whatever and i don't even know if that's where it is but but just i picked the name out so there's an island and all the inhabitants there are living in a virtual reality simulation. They're actually connected. They have feeding tubes. They have um, implants in their brain. Uh, matrix and, style. Yeah, it's matrix style, but you're controlling it. You, James Altucher, are controlling it. Um, so, so the question then comes up, well, what obligations do you have to these living individuals? In other words, they're actually living. They're not, they are not simulations. They're inhabiting a simulation. And the question is, do you have ethical obligations, moral obligations to treat the simulation, not unplug them, make sure that they don't feel physical pain, or maybe they should feel physical pain as part of the, of the virtual reality's uh, realism level setting on, on, uh, you know, setting on number 10. So it brings up all sorts of, of philosophical, moral objections, potentially, or quandaries that could be present. You know, can you turn it off? Uh, do you have to have an uninterruptible power supply? What if they find out about this? Uh, what if what if there are clues left in there? How much risk analysis has to go into uh, them avoiding finding out about it because of what would happen to them? So it's funny because a lot of these things eventually lead to almost an omniscient, omnipotent power in the simulators. And I actually gave a talk about this to an atheist organization called the Sunday Assembly. There's a couple of dozen clubs like this around the world. I call it an atheist church. They meet on Sunday mornings. It's for secular atheist people. And I gave a, I gave a talk about it on Easter, about the very first Easter egg, which was in the game called Adventure on the Atari 2600. I remember that very well. Yeah, that was uh, my, one of my favorite uh, games of all time, even today. Yeah. And there was an Easter egg. Do you remember this? Did you ever discover the Easter egg in it? Probably. I mean, I'm I'm looking back to when I was I was I was 12 years old or yeah 
probably 12 or 13 years old. Yeah, I was in the early 80s. The, the thing that's so interesting about that Easter egg is that you couldn't really publicize it, maybe on a bulletin board or something like that, but the people that played console video games weren't on bulletin boards as much. But anyway, I found out about it from my cousin, as, as most things do, and it was a little pixel, and you dragged it around the screen, and eventually you got past the dragons, and you made it inside the castle, and you got it to a secret chamber, which you pushed the controller, this little vertical joystick, up into the upper left corner or whatever, and the pixel got dropped off, and it said, created by Warren Robinette. And I was thinking, like, I, telling these atheists about this simulation on Easter, about the very first Easter egg, and how similar that is to the uh, 17th century philosopher René Descartes. So René Descartes is very famous for the phrase cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. And that resolution was to the question of whether or not he or any person could potentially distinguish their existence from a mere brain in a jar. He actually talks about the possibility that he is not a living creature with free will and, and organizational abilities and so forth, and that he is actually a brain in a jar fed stimulation. You know, this is back in the 1700s, 1600s or whatever. And he resolves that by saying, no, I can prove that I am not because I think. Therefore, I exist. That's the meaning of it. But people forget, you know, it's like a lot of these quotes – People forget the second half of the sentence, like, like, love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, the next sentence is, because I am the Lord, your God. And the next part of that sentence by Rene Descartes involves God. He basically says God would not let somebody experience the process of thought and have it be for naught, so to speak. In other words, God is perfect. He's not wasteful. So in other words, he resolved it but only through invoking the invocation of a all-powerful, omniscient being called God. And so I think it's very interesting that simulation hypothesis also kind of posits that we could currently be brains in a jar, uh, an internet jar, uh, and not with fed by liquid nutrients, but fed by electrical currents. And, uh, but, but still the exact same possibility remains that we may not be able to uh, distinguish it but for the existence of some higher power, master simulator, Warren Robinette, or God. Right, so, so imagine it from the point of view that we as a civilization are not in a simulation, but that we're going to create one that is so realistic, the inhabitants of it think that they're in an entire universe that had a big bang, that whatever. So you could imagine as technology progresses, like you were saying earlier with Moore's Law, we could eventually make computer worlds kind of like we do now with computer games but you know with full vr realistic capabilities and people in our civilization uh, other humans could decide oh i want to i want to be in this vr and you know i, I don't want to remember anything just i'm going to play this vr and they can go in it and live a full lifetime and you know have telescopes that could see the you know trillions of light years away or whatever and uh, uh, and then they die, and then they wake up in the real civilization, like welcome back from the game. Or there's the flip side, which is so so you could be, we could be now in one of those simulations, as I had just described. But the other thing is too, you're sort of it, it, it calls into question of what is human. So you just set a brain in a jar, and you're still human enough to enter into a simulation, which is this imaginary world created by the 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 simulation civilization that made it. But there's also the fact that we, you know, assuming there is a singularity where computers somehow are eventually become 
conscious in a similar way to what we regard as humans, we also could just be fake characters. There might be only 10 real people from that simulation civilization in this universe. They're playing the game and we're just characters running around in that simulated universe that we're just powered by this billion year civilizations version of AI, which is much more sophisticated than ours. Yeah. So, you know, the, the simulation argument, again, it's, it's, it's an ancient one in a certain sense. You know, there's a, there's a claim that there's a, some sort of a Chinese mythology from the, you know, 500 to 400 BC period called the butterfly dream, uh, which is, you know, this, this master is dreaming that he was a butterfly and he didn't know that he was actually himself. And it's kind of beautiful artwork and goes along with it. And it's sort of a, a, a notion that how do you know that you're, that you know? You know, in fact, that's what Homo sapien means. It means a man that knows that he knows, uh, and and it could mean that you know that you know that you're going to die, right? Humans are the only uh, animals that we know that are conscious of their own existence and their own demise, and that colors everything we do, according to many psychologists. But the question of is this actually possible for a computer simulation? Of course, there could be other simulations. You don't need a computer to have the butterfly dream, and certainly they didn't. And what Bolstrom originally came up with. Uh, was not really to prove that we are living in a simulation, but it would be that the natural consequences of advanced artificial intelligence could make such a thing possible. And so now the question of the likelihood of that, of each person, once you get to this level of existing in a perceived reality, but actually existing in simulation, he claims that is extremely high. Now, there's a lot of- Right, because of this trillion to one- if, if most of the quote-unquote worlds out there are simulations, the odds are we're in one. Yeah, right. And the odds are that civilization that created this simulation, they're also in a simulation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he says, yeah, unless we are now uh, living in a simulation, our descendants will almost certainly never run an ancestor simulation. In other words, what would be the motivation of a simulation to simulate, you know, a fourth century peasant in the northwest uh, outskirts of London or something? But we feel like we're extremely important. Like, you know, I'd, I'd wonder, well, you know, why aren't there more Kardashians? You know, it's like, why why would you simulate people that aren't of note? Like everybody who's uh, who has been reincarnated is always like a noble woman, you know, Shirley MacLaine was like, you know, she was a, she was a noble woman in the 1400s in Paris, you know, but they're never like, I was a milkmaid, you know, in, uh, in South Africa. And then I died. <laughs> it's, it's always like, I was basically the equivalent of a Kardashian. Now there can't be that many. It's like how many people say they were at Woodstock or remember that they were at Woodstock is 80 times higher than the number of people that are actually at Woodstock. Um, so I think, you know, the, the simulation hypothesis that is most interesting to me is on cosmological grounds. Um, and this has been brought up by a friend of mine, Sean Carroll, who's been on my podcast. He says, effectively, that if a civilization is capable of performing a simulation, it will likely perform many simulations, which would then imply that we might be the lowest level of simulation. And then it would be impossible from the lowest level to perceive that such an advanced simulation is is possible to conduct. In other words, we wouldn't have a glimpse of what it's like to make an advanced simulation. It would kind of be like me explaining it to my two-year-old twins, you know, what a simulation is. They don't know. They don't know the difference between real reality and virtual reality. So from my point of view, though, can the simulation hypothesis be falsified? That's actually an interesting question. In other words, if you could falsify it, then that's a cosmology, that's a big bang that we can rule out and say, now we can devote our attention to other, other arguments. 
So the falsification that I've heard is related to this idea that to create an entire universe, you would need a computer that has more atoms that then exist in the universe. That that's the only falsification I've seen, which which seems to me to be easily combated by saying, yeah, we have no idea of the physics of the universe that's the civilization that's creating the simulation. Right. We yeah. also don't know. Maybe they've been running, maybe they're so far advanced. They've lived for a, each person there lives for a trillion years each. And for them, they've been running this simulation. They started it off with the big bang. And to answer your question, everything has just sort of evolved out of that. So it's not like they've said, Hey, let's make everybody a Kim Kardashian right. or Napoleon. It's just That's the unmoved mover. That's the Aristotelian unmoved mover that created the universe and then disappeared. Uh, there's a, so what you said is, is it a plausibility argument? It's implausible to, according to some for, for the, uh, an advanced technological civilization to create such an advanced supercomputer. But again, if you ask the guy who wrote the butterfly dream poem in, in 476 BC, uh, you know, he was painting watercolor on parchment or or whatever, skins or whatever. If you asked him, well, like, what do you think about a D-Wave 100 millikelvin supercomputer based on quantum uh, qubits? I mean, what are you talking about? Like, the level of comprehension is so far beyond what what someone would be able to to even envision. So I don't view that as a fundamental uh, falsification. That's a plausibility. And you could say, what was the odds that going from your 1992 virtual reality that we'd have, um, you know, holograms that can, you know, represent faithfully a cave in, 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 in the Middle East or something. And so we have these amazing VR, but it's, it's sort of, it wouldn't be impossible for you to envision it the way it would be impossible for the guy who wrote the butterfly dream 2,500 years ago to conceive of a quantum computer. But so that's not a fundamental objection. No, the way to falsify it would be uh, to think about what would be the limitations of any simulation. Let's just say Moore's law continues indefinitely to the future. By the way, one of the weaknesses of that argument is that actually um, the power of supercomputers is not going up at Moore's law. I don't know if you are aware of this, but even though the ordinary commodity computer chip capability is increasing, you know, doubling roughly every 18 months or so, the actual um, uh, performance of high throughput computers, uh, AKA supercomputers or high performance computers uh, at the highest levels is actually slowly saturating. In other words, it's getting better, but the increment is far, far below Moore's law. And the reason for that's very interesting because as these things get more capable, more people want to use it. More people think of ways to use this vast power of computing. And so the actual resources get taxed in terms of the overhead for every computation. Yes, they can do the calculation in a nanosecond, but it might take the graduate student 10 years to program the, the code. Um, you know, my graduate students, uh, that would be a short PhD thesis for them. But but uh, <laughs> they're screaming at me. Uh, but, the, but the fact is, how do we know that we uh, that the set that this isn't going to continue? If you plot the rate of use of these supercomputers, it's going to go up too. So you've got a source of improved computing power, but you have this vast sink that everyone wants to simulate everything. Once you have this powerful computer, you know, uh, like I always joke when I'm sitting with one of my uh, students, they'll be I'll ask him to do some calculation or whatever, like but just like arithmetic. And then they'll take out a calculator. I'm like, you're sitting in front of like the most powerful device ever invented for computation. Why don't you make use of like this spreadsheet or, you know, run a Python code to calculate the tangent of some angle, you know, but they'll take out their calculator, whatever. Um, so the, the point is that as they get more powerful, they get more utilized and that decreases the net number of computations. So it's not the number of computations. It's the number of floating point operations that can be done or instructions that can be run. That's item number one. 
but every instruction at some level is discretized. In other words, even a quantum computer eventually has to produce a classical result, which can be translated into, like, what's running these quantum computers? They're not being run by quantum computers. They're attached to a computer station just like we're talking on. And so eventually it has to be translated into discrete zeros and ones that can then be uh, transmitted and, and, and decoded. So that means there's a fundamental resolution Right? There's a fundamental discretization of information that we perceive. It might be 4K resolution, 8K resolution, but it's not going to be infinite resolution. In other words, there'll be stars that will send light out at certain angles. But for and a simulation could, could potentially produce 10 to the 10 to the 120 different trajectories. But it can't make an infinite number of them. In other words, there are certain things that are fundamentally analog and are very difficult to reproduce in our analog-to-digital conversion problem. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's gonna be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes 
to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. There are certain things that are fundamentally analog and are very difficult to reproduce in our analog to digital conversion problem. Right. But as you've mentioned in a prior podcast, there's actually nothing in the universe that's infinite. Yes. Yeah. So nothing in terms of a physical property like density, temperature, pressure, et cetera. But uh, uh, what I'm saying is that you could look at the angle of the star Sirius over there, and then you could move you know, one billionth of a radian over and then measure that position and should have moved by one billionth of a radian. But actually you'll see it, it'll like chunk, like it'll be like a, a pixelization, like a staircase pattern of it because they have to simulate the trajectory and it has some fundamental resolution element that by the way, has to be propagated throughout the entirety of the universe. So in other words, we're looking at you know light from a moon of Jupiter that we've been to, uh, and that that light has to progress to us along certain trajectories as the Earth moves around. That means that whoever is responsible, program this light beam so that it reaches Brian Keating's telescope on this day at this time. 
they would have to know that with infinite precision where I'm going to be. In other words, they have to forecast all the different properties in order to produce the observations without revealing that it has this jagged staircase discretization in the analog-to-digital converter. But that's doable. Well, at some level, the computational cost will exceed the number of particles in the universe. Right, that's the problem, but we don't really know. For instance, if they're if they're using... Hypothetically, you know, quantum computing seems to be just a theory. Like, we don't even know if such a thing exists. Mm -hmm. But let's say, hypothetically, it exists. Now you really are using computational power drawn from an infinite number of universes. So no computation is beyond, you know, possible. Yeah. So there are predictions. There's actually a paper uh, that kind of looks at this on, on test of the simulation theory. It's called On Testing the Simulation Theory. They, instead of using light from the moons of Jupiter, he's talking about the um, there would be actual patterns that we could observe in the arrival of very high-energy particles called, uh, called ultra-high-energy cosmic rays, and that they would be discretized in a way um, there's another work that's been done on how much um, uh, resolution would you have on the opposite end of the scale. In other words, the properties of the proton and the neutron depend on the properties of quarks. To simulate those so that uh, the Large Hadron Collider will produce the exact data that we think it should produce based on the models of this uh, type of theory called lattice gauge theory, that is, you know, basically it could be infinite uh, amount of computing power that's required for each collision let alone to reproduce every collision that's ever occurred. Now, these aren't falsifications yet, um, but I think you know the combination of, of these things uh, could be used in some sense to the discretization of space-time events and propagation of light. For our purposes in the Big Bang Theory, uh, it's something that currently um, has less weight because of its uh, difficulty in falsifying it. In other words, as you said, like they could just make a more powerful computer or it could be, it could be a uh, multiverse where you know, they simulate the laws of gravity and quantum chromodynamics in our universe, but then in another universe is totally different because the simulation started off with a different initial seed. I, I guess, you know, for me, what's the motivation? And this actually couples into the religious, like why did God create the universe if you believe in God? Again, I don't care. I, I usually say I don't know if I believe in God, but I believe in religion. Uh, so uh, you know, the difference in, in perspective is what is the motivation for doing it? There's only a finite amount of energy in the universe uh, that we can observe. Um, and you have to wonder what is the benefit of this? But the thing that tickles me is that some of the most, you know, um, secular, atheistic people uh, in the world, you know, will posit things like the simulation hypothesis. I'm hoping to have Nick Bolstrom on my podcast to discuss that very fact and whether or not there are these theological overtones in this in this model of origin. Yeah, but, you know, if, again, thinking we invented, our, our species has invented computers, what, 80 years ago, roughly? And it was built on some science that existed another 100 or so years before that. But if a civilization is a trillion years old in some other universe, pre-existing universe, they're going to be so far advanced in computational power, in in things that we have no concept of. It's like explaining things to a, a baby for them to explain how it works. We just have, they might, you know, they might not be using computational power. They might be using something we have no concept of. And for them, it does, just like how we can create huge, almost infinitely sized computer games, you know, then the world's in those, for them, trivial is creating a 13 billion year 
universe that started with a big bang and with, with gluons and quarks and all these things. And, you know, I, 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 I've seen this as the, the theory falsifying it, but that assumes a civilization kind of slightly more advanced than ours instead of a trillion years or a quadrillion years more advanced than ours. Yeah, that's the problem. It's like we we don't have um, we don't have any concept of what it would be like to go that far in advance. But the problem is that if you assume the simulation hypothesis is true, you know, then then that would have to be something that would be implanted into our branch of the simulation. And in that branch, we would be forced to think, well, we're not going to have this capability, but it seems likely, or we don't have this capability, but it seems likely just apply some time. And, you know, look, if even if you look at something which is much simpler than creating the entire universe, creating life, let's just say, you know, creating life, we have no idea how life actually originated there. In other words, how protons formed into helium and hydrogen is much more well understood than how helium, hydrogen eventually form a star which forms byproducts that forms phosphorus, a nitrogen, carbon, et cetera, that then forms amino acids. That, that you know, In other words, we, we could also say that's a type of computing also. It's based on a genetic code. Right. Just apply time, and it will develop with Moore's law. But that's not the way biology. It's not like we have a, a doubling of number of species on Earth every, every year. That doesn't happen. In fact, the opposite happens. Okay, but let's, let's look at it. Like, take a game like Grand Theft Auto. How do we know that we're not just a character in a, a, a quadrillion year upgrade of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, well, that's the basic problem of falsification. So Descartes got out of it by saying, you know, that even if God was malicious, uh, it would still not invalidate the aspect of free choice. In other words, he's choosing to torture me, but I am choosing how I react to being tortured in that way. Or I'm choosing how, I, you know, the existence of God and the existence of me means that I exist at least, even if God is malicious. So, But, but a character in Grand Theft Auto, again, uh, with the, add a, uh, an extra trillion years to making Grand Theft Auto, that character from our perspective is not real, but he or she might think he is real and thinking and has protons and atoms. He might be convinced, I think, therefore I am. And in fact, he might actually exist. Like that might be a real <laughs> being, just happens to be in a computer code. All right. Well, let's get back to simple things like the Big Bang, James. <laughs> I, you know, now that we're talking, I'm kind of thinking it's probably, why wouldn't we be in a simulation? Like, like, like other than the, 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 the you, you know, we'll never have the computational power to make it. Let's just assume some other civilization can make it. Why isn't everything a simulation? Or how can, instead of trying to falsify it, is there any way to prove it? Yes, so that that is an interesting concept. And uh, that we, we could definitely take up. But it also will be allied with some of the discussion that we're going to have about the multiverse, et cetera. Because a lot of these would rely on kind of a larger kind of landscape uh, on which the different ways that the laws of physics could play out, which are much simpler than constructing a sociological construct. I guess part of it would also be, well, how did the simulation simulators get started? Like, who started them? Uh, are you going to say that it's been going on for all time? Uh, what, are, what are the energy constraints on such a on such a simulation? Those could be no-go theorems. Again, what we do mostly as scientists is not prove things. We look for ways to disprove all other alternatives. And what we're left with is uh, essentially Occam's razor's best guess at the truth. 
And I would say there are many other, you know, while this cannot be falsified necessarily, I am less sanguine than it's actually provable or even true. But but the Occam's razor, they make it, people who believe in the theory, for them, Occam's razor is that we're in a simulation because trillions of simulations that reflect worlds as real as ours have been created. If, if one has been created, then trillions have been created. And the real universe, again, is only one of those trillions of real seeming universes. And so the odds are we are, the Occam's razor is that we are in a simulation. The odds would be enormous that we're not in a simulation. Right. So the, the question comes, how do we, because in science, what we're going to try to do is falsify and so, show that this theory has defects in it. So there are two ways that people have proposed, as I said, looking at uh, the very smallest things in the universe and then looking for properties in the universe in the largest scales. So the question is, if you it really took this too far, you could say, well, let's say it is falsified. Well, maybe that's just what the simulation, that's how they cover their tracks. They show us that the universe is is not a simulation, uh, and then we find evidence for that. Then we can say, well, that's exactly what they would want us to know so that we don't discover the truth of reality. So these problems for me are not super satisfying because, yes, you can't falsify them, but just in the same way, I feel like we can't falsify that the world got started by you know a belching unicorn on the planet Neptune. They're interesting ways for me, mostly as an experimental physicist, look for ways you can prove it wrong. If there are no such ways, think harder about it. Uh, and Galileo said, um, make measurable, measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not. So I kind of alter that and I say, you know, falsify what is falsifiable and make falsifiable what is not. <laughs> and so for me, I'm interested in these kinds of aspects of could you prove it wrong more than I am of like really fretting if it's if it's you know not real. I I again I think it would effectively be tantamount to some omniscient, omnipotent deity. And actually what interests me on a personal level is more kind of like the ethics of the simulators themselves. And 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 even, forget about the future, and, and this will be the last thing before I run to a group meeting of cosmologists, even if it's not true, what if we can make, just human beings, you know, James's and Brian's, what if we can make a really advanced simulation where people like the Grand Theft Auto, but then they're actually like sensations? Maybe like when a character gets shot, you know, you blow up a capacitor, you know, inside the computer or something. So it feels pain or like uh, has some sensation. What are the ethics that we have of this? Can you turn it off? Can you turn off the simulator? Like you've lovingly crafted it. Not, not, not talking about, you know, like how much money it would cost or, or whatever, but like, do human beings, will we ever get to a level where we have ethical obligations to silicon or to quantum qubits? I think that's really interesting to think about. Let me add one minute of one, one idea. And this is based on conversations we've had before, is that the general trend of physics is to show more and more with each new level of theories how insignificant man is. Yes. So at first, it's like, oh, God probably doesn't look like a man then it's the sun probably doesn't off circle the earth. Then the solar system's not the only thing in the universe. It, there's other stars and they don't orbit us. And then there's other galaxies that don't orbit us and, and on and on. And the final version of that would be that, hey, even our universe is just some other civilizations programs. And they don't even, the people in that don't even know we exist. We're just like a bits in some you know, huge simulation they're doing. They don't even care about us. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. So for us to think about that, that's the extensions of what we call the Copernican principle. You know, are we the center? Is our biology central? That's another issue. Like, do we need carbon-based life in order to uh, have life? Or do we need, is all life carbon-based? That's another anthropocentric kind of argument in terms of the chemistry space instead of physical space. And there are all sorts of these things, as, as you know. And so I think those are, yeah, and, and silicon, you know, silicon in terms of computers, uh, is it only like squishy, wet things that can have intelligence? Or can we really have you know, human-level artificial intelligence? And I think those are really fascinating things to consider. All right. Well, Brian, enjoy your meeting with the cosmologists on a Friday yes. evening. And you, all of these cosmologists getting trashed and smoking crack on a, <laughs> now that the week is over. And uh, <laughs> hopefully one of us will figure out how to... M- m- Scott Adams always talks about once you realize you're in a simulation, you can manipulate it more easily. That's a whole other uh, function of this. But let's do another episode of How the Universe Began. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.